second chapter of the epistle of James, at first glance, it might seem to be something that would not uh, very strictly and very directly affect us, but in reality it is. So though the particular manifestation, uh, the particular outworking of the principle dealt with in this passage uh, might be different in our age. The principle is there. The problem is there. It may only express itself in a little different way. James wrote in a very class-conscious society. Now, it's not my purpose in the pulpit ministry tonight or any other time to lecture on the history of the biblical era, but an understanding of certain conditions at that time will enhance our understanding of this uh, passage. In the Roman Empire, nearly everybody was a slave. Now, that may be an oversimplification, and I wouldn't want to go quoting percentages, but very few people relative to the total population were citizens of the Roman Empire. And anyone who was not a citizen of Rome potentially might become a slave in certain sets of circumstances. Virtually all of the educators, all of the learned men who taught the skills and the technology and the philosophy and uh, who taught in the education system, virtually all of them were slaves. The, uh, many of the artisans, many of the workmen were slaves. And a great number of people were, in fact, slaves. Those who were not might as well have been uh, because their society was so class-conscious that it amounted to a caste system that separated people into a certain level economically and socially, whether in fact they were held slaves by another individual or not. Now, Christianity, as it attacked the world of the Roman Empire, ignored those class distinctions. In the church at Rome, for instance, we know that there were in the same church slaves of Caesar and high officials in the administration of the Roman Empire. And so the church became a unique and different kind of approach to society. Even in the ancient Jewish civilizations, there was not the acknowledgement of equality among persons in different levels of society that there was in the New Testament church. And so James is addressing a very class-conscious, caste-system society. But the problem area he deals with is still with us. It is the area of respect of persons. And James would have us understand that we really dare not look down on anyone whom the Lord loves. And yet so often we do just that, either by design or by neglect or by failure to consider carefully, we realize we fail to realize, rather, that every individual is of equal value before God. Now, James continues in this chapter with the theme, which is the general theme of the whole epistle, the theme of doing the Word of God, as he talks about the matter of true equality before God. Now, the verses we consider tonight are verses 1 through 13, and in keeping with simplicity and with dealing with the truth in the text, there are just two points 
that I believe James is making to us in this passage that I want to share with you. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, true equality is a fact because before God there is an equality of worth as it touches the human race. An equality of worth. We read verses 1 through 8. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brother. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, we are familiar with the attitude expressed here as a true expression of Christianity. But when James wrote, his words would have fallen on many ears who would take them as very revolutionary and as a totally new concept. He, he points out the obvious uh, when he says in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And the immediate reaction of many who heard him would be to say, why, of course we made distinctions among ourselves. Our entire society is built on distinction between individuals. And though that attitude has passed, and though in this nation, though we are not free from class consciousness, though we are not free uh, totally from an unequal attitude toward persons for various reasons of their station in life or their race, perhaps more than any other nation in the world, we are less aware of those things than anybody has ever been. And yet the problem of respect of persons is still with us. You know, there are two cities in Texas, Houston and Dallas, in which there are probably more Baptists than there are people. In Houston alone, there are more Southern Baptist churches than there are in the states of Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, etc., 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 in that one city. Now, I can talk about Houston. That's the little place up north, Dallas. Uh, I'm from Houston, so we don't talk much about Dallas. There are even more Southern Baptist churches in Dallas than there are Houston. I've never been able to figure that out. But I grew up in Houston, and I can tell you about Houston. You can go from the east end of Houston to the west end. You can go out in the new suburban areas. You can go north and south almost to the water on the south and almost past Conroe on the north, and you will find a class system in the Baptist churches. 
by virtue of being well established and by virtue of the fact that such a tremendously high percentage of the people who have religious preference in that area are Baptist people, there is such a proliferation of churches that they have almost put themselves into a caste system. The church where I grew up, which is in the East End, is in an area that economically and socially has been declining now for over 30 years. That church bears very little relationship internally, the makeup of it, to the church where I grew up. But the church where a lot of those folks went out by the airport, very beautiful, is a very high-dollar, high-brow, high-class church. The problem of respect of persons is still with them. And the tragedy is that every place in Houston, Texas, with 290 Southern Baptist churches. Some of them are stewards, you know, with a few, and with one here and there in the outlying areas. And the tragedy is that if we allow ourselves to be class conscious, there are scores and scores of people we're never going to reach with the gospel. Now, the first thing, verses 1 through 8, the first thing that James gives us by way of an explanation as to true equality before God is the fact that no matter how society looks at it, no matter what the system in which we find ourselves, there is an equality of worth before God, an equality of worth. As he begins this chapter, this new paragraph of thought, he addresses them once more as my brothers. Now, I made a little bit out of this in the first message about James, the brother of our Lord, who considered himself merely as one who was born a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think as James wrote this letter to uh, these churches in which class consciousness was a very real problem and respect of persons was a threat to the fellowship, James, by design, all the way through this letter, underlines the fact that all of us are brethren and sisters. We have one older brother, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but all of us are equal, equal in work before God. You know from your own experience that it is hard to live the inside out. You know, it is very difficult to convey to others when we have a great need to, where we are coming from inwardly, how we feel, what we think. And it is difficult in the best of circumstances and situations to really exteriorize our innermost feelings and our deepest desires to please God. You know, one thing James is touching on here in an equality of worth is the fact that because it is so hard for us to live the inside out before other people, we need to be very, very carefully about the judgment we form relative to other people. Because it is almost uniformly true that as we judge and draw conclusions on the insufficient information we can gather merely by observing other people, that we will always come to the wrong conclusion. Now, I'm a lot less paranoid than I used to be. I used to be fairly paranoid, I think. Uh, I don't think everybody's after me anymore. My percentages are coming down to 60 now, 60 out of 100. That's not bad. But I, I used to have a guy, and we're still real good friends. 
in a church that I pastored. And until I really got to know the guy, it was a terrible distraction to me. Uh, because in trying to look at everybody in this congregation as I preached, uh, every time I looked at the old boy, it just looked like he was in pain. And uh, it, just, it was terrible to look at him. And I just knew before I really got to know that guy that he really had it in for me. And that he just didn't like what I said, how I said it, when I said it, or the fact that I said anything at all. I built that all up in my mind, kind of like the guy that's going to borrow the new lawnmower from his brother-in-law because his is broke down, and he starts walking the truth block to his brother-in-law's house, and he starts talking to himself, and he says, now, I wonder if Tom's going to let me borrow his lawnmower. And then he plays devil's advocate, and he says, no, I don't think he will. I wouldn't let him use my new lawnmower. And he goes, oh, and by the time he gets there and knocks on the door, and Tom comes to the door, it all comes out, and he says, you can just keep your lawnmower. Well, I had that kind of an attitude built up about this old boy before I got to know him. But, you know, I was totally wrong in the way I was interpreting that very limited information. It just so happened that as his brain worked and he really tried to concentrate on the message and, and, and apply the Scripture and absorb the Word, it just happened that that's the way it affected his face. And uh, it's never good to take that kind of insufficient information and evaluate other people. First place, we don't have any right to do that. And secondly, then, we're almost always going to be wrong. And isn't it good that we know that you cannot judge God and the truth by the likes of us? You know, that at the same time as we deal with a matter of respecting persons and an equality of worth, we as Christians are under a very real obligation to the world, and we must understand, though, that many people who have no spiritual point of reference will judge God and the truth by what they see in our lives. And if the world sees a class consciousness in the church, they will not be drawn to the church because they can find that kind of rejection anywhere they look for it without coming to church to get it. Like uh, uh, another friend I had in another church, it seems like this is reminiscence night, who uh, it was good-natured, fortunately. Sometimes it isn't. But, uh, you know, when somebody was giving him a hard time and his wife was around, he'd say, listen, I don't have to leave home to get this kind of abuse. You know, I can just stay home and be treated like this. The world does not need to see that kind of attitude and that kind of actions toward each other uh, that we have toward each other in the church. Now, James acknowledges uh, in this discussion of treating two men differently because of their uh, economic status, he acknowledges that there is hypocrisy even when the church gathers for worship. And in verses 3 and 4, he urges us not to respect one person above another, and the term respect, May, be or may mean to look into the face of or to judge on outward appearances. You see, the world does that. The world nowadays feeds all kinds of information into a computer, and whatever comes out is the conclusion that the world goes with. They just put available, observable data into some kind of an information bank, and when they want it, they punch in and come out, and whatever comes out, that's the way it is. Of course, we know that that's not true. And we know that God doesn't want it that way. And so Paul says, do not have respect 
to persons. He says literally in the Greek, do not judge others by looking at the outside, by looking at the face. This kind of respect is given for all of the wrong reasons. And it is a wicked and unholy thing for us to do. It is given for material reasons. And isn't it a good thing that God's standards of worth are different than ours? You know, I'm grateful to God for grace. I do not want justice. I do not want my rights. I want mercy. Because I shudder to think what would happen if it were not for the grace of God and the law of the harvest operated unabated in every detail and I was one day evaluated at every point according to the standards of judgment that I have applied to others at some points during my life. You see, true... You know, we talk about earning respect and there is a, there is a sense in which that is true in many situations. But when talking about the worth of individuals, nobody has to earn the intrinsic respect that you as a Christian owe to all men. You give that respect of their personhood because God says so. And because every individual is of value to God. Now in verse 8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal Law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. It is our privilege to fulfill, to bring to completion or reality in our dealings with other people the royal law of doing for others that which we would do for ourselves, given the same opportunity. Love for God is the primary thing. Christianity must not be allowed to degenerate into some kind of a secular humanism that uh, preaches goodness toward men for the sake of goodness toward men. No, not at all. For the purpose of all men is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose for which we were created. Though love for God is primary, the Scriptures teach us that because... God has loved us, we will pass that love and that respect and that concern on to other people. When we learn grammar and they teach us the verbs, it is I in the first person, you in the second person, and he in the third person. But as we are socialized as Christians and as we interact, with other individuals of equal value and with a God of supreme and surpassing worth. We must remember that it is in the first person, He, in the second person, you, and in the last or the third person, it is I. God first. And then Paul says in Romans, let every man prefer another, esteeming the other better than himself. True equality must be the practice of the Christian church because before God there is an equality of worth that is common to all men. But then in verses 9 through 13, and this is a little different approach that James takes, but he says, 
And this is by way, you know, lest we should get to thinking that not only are all men worth the same thing, but all men are worth more than they are. Uh, he says equality is a truth for the church because there is an equality of wickedness. There is an equality of wickedness. Now, nowhere in this passage has James said that all men are equally good because no man is any good at all, period. There is an equality of worth, but that is the gift of God. And then it ill behooves any of us to be down on others of us because there is an equality of wickedness. Verses 9 through 13, James says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has come become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to those, to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, James has gone to great length with valid illustration to demonstrate that before God there is an equality of worth to all men. But now, lest we should become man-centered in our practice, he wants us to understand that there is a true equality and there must be in the practice of the Christian religion a true equality between persons because there is an equality of wickedness. Now, one thing that James introduced in the passage we considered this morning that he continued here, that is the fact that motive is so very important. The source, the inward spiritual source of what we do is really a more critical factor in our Christian walk than what we do. The motive is more important than the action. Motive is so critical. Here in this passage, he says, if you show partiality, if you have an attitude of partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here, sin is not even something that is done so much as it is the attitude. And surely this is in line with the teaching of Christianity, of the Lord Jesus and of the apostles, that the sin that is cherished and nurtured and performed and carried out within the imagination and within the mind is as crucial and as damaging to the Christian walk and the Christian's effectiveness as in the action that may be taken. Sin here is seen as a, an offense of which we are convicted by the law as an attitude and not even as an action. He says, when you do this, you are working sin. Or the King James says, I believe ye work 
sin or you let sin work in you as a principle of life. Now, you know what Christianity teaches is not some kind of a sinless perfection in the attitudes and the actions that we have every day. Rather, what Christianity teaches is a new source for the life so that the principle of the Christian life ceases to be sin. The life principle, the source of all actions and attitudes, ceases to be the old, perverted, depraved human nature. And the source of the actions and the attitudes becomes the new nature that is planted in us at salvation when the Lord Jesus Christ saves us. Now, we have studied elsewhere how Scripture says that love covers a multitude of sins. But as Peter wrote that, we saw that that means that in our attitudes toward other people, our love for them covers their sins. We must never allow truth to be interpreted falsely by thinking that the love is to cover our sins and that we use God's love as an excuse for sin. And that's very easy for us to do. You know, we take sin so lightly. We take sin so lightly that we, we very flippantly say, well, I'll repent, God will forgive me, and that will be all there is to it. And there's a sense in which that is true, but it is very dangerous to be so defiant and so casual in our attitudes toward our own sins. The covering of sins by the love of God must never be an excuse for our own sins. You know, I think James was dealing with the immediate reaction to what he had to say about an equality of worth. Some in the church who were of the higher classes in society doubtless would tend to respond and react inwardly by saying, that individual is not as good as I am. That person may be a slave because of a criminal activity. And here James come back, comes back and he says, if you keep all of the law except for one little point, you are just as guilty as the individual who has broken every bit of it. You see, the devil would like for us to develop a keep score attitude. You know, we just put a giant scoreboard up everywhere there's wall space and we list everybody's name and then we keep score and the guy with the fewest X marks by his name is the best one in the crowd. We keep score. Well, I'm better than they are because I've never done some of the things that they've done. You see, the devil has that attitude, but whether we understand this fully or not, you may accept it as truth that as far as God is concerned, sin is sin. Now, that should be useful to all of us for various reasons. If you are the model, if you were the model child and are the model adult, and there are a few of those types floating around, it should serve to notify you that you have no righteousness of your own and that the sinfulness of your heart qualifies you for hell just as fast as anybody else who ever did anything. If, on the other hand, you see yourself in the past as a great sinner, it should serve as an encouragement for you to understand that as far as God is concerned, sin is sin, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all 
unrighteousness. Our equality of wickedness should not be a source of pride, nor should it be a source of despair, because God knew what every one of us was before He ever created this world. And He knew what it would cost Him to pay for our sins, and all of our sins are covered and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so James says, whoever you are, whoever you are, if you keep all the law, but you offend in one point, you are just as guilty as the one who has broken every law. I've told you the story before. I probably will tell you the story again. How during their later years, there came a break over points of doctrine between some giant figures in the 18th century Protestant world, George Whitfield and John Wesley. And it seems as though in that day, some people joyed in that division as people always joy and try to get mileage out of problems between other people. And one day, George Whitfield was asked, do you expect, Dr. Whitfield, when you get to heaven to see John Wesley there, obviously giving Whitfield the opportunity to, to attack the theology of his former close associate, John Wesley. And George Whitfield said, Sir, I do not expect that I will see John Wesley in heaven, for I will be so far back and he will be so near the throne that I will not be able to see him. There is an equality about us of worth before God and of wickedness before God that we need to recognize that none is any better than the other. Now in verses 12 and 13, James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty or the law of freedom in Christ Jesus. You see, we are not going to be judged by the law, the law of Moses. We are going to be judged by the law of liberty, the law of grace, whereby the Lord Jesus Christ has given us equal worth and has borne in His body at the cross our equal wickedness. There is no mercy, he says in verse 13, for the one who has shown no mercy and there is no fear of judgment for the one who is merciful. You know, thank God that the law of the harvest operates in a limited fashion for those who are covered by the blood of Jesus. And yet there are many ways in which the grace of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God cannot erase and eradicate the consequences of the actions that we take and the words that we speak. I think probably that most of us here tonight have lived long enough to wish very desperately that there was a time that we could go back and redo, that there was a word that we could recall and wish that it had never been spoken. And in a fashion, we must at times live with the consequences of our sins. 
But James reduces the grace of God to this. And he says, there is no mercy for those who show no mercy, but there is no fear of judgment for those who are merciful. And it reminds me of what perhaps has become a cliche, and yet a statement that contains so much truth as we consider how in the church we must approach the matter of the worth of each individual. There must be a practice of true equality because there is an equality of worth and there is an equality of wickedness. And someone has well said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Thank God that that is so. May we pray. Father in heaven, one day, when I stand before you and when you draw the curtain on this world, I really plan to be shocked by the fact that I am there, not the fact that someone else is there. Father, I understand how you could forgive Saul of Tarsus who had consented to the murder of your children. I understand how you can deal in mercy and love with others, but knowing myself from the inside out and the depth of the wickedness of my humanity, I really cannot comprehend why you would love me at all. But I thank you for that love and that mercy. And I pray that you would build within us all an awareness of true equality so that as we present the gospel by way of our lives, by way of our ministries to this community, they would see in us a people who value them and cherish them as precious souls for whom Christ died. Father, don't ever let us forget that the ground at the foot of the cross is level that any benefit, any goodness, any blessing that we know is the gift of mercy. Father, thank you that you stooped so low as to be the Savior of this race. Do with us as you please. Use us in the lives of others. Use us in each other's lives to minister and to bear our burdens so that we can effectively reach out to others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing as our hymn of invitation, hymn 156, Jesus paid it all. What he would have you do, do it right now. Do it quickly. <laughs>